Hi, this is Wilson, pastor of Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for joining our podcast. Over the pandemic, a lot of our lives have been reoriented. Whether it's our work, school, friendships, or church, we've become comfortable with a new normal because of COVID. Many of us are asking what church is and how important is it really? Can I be a strong Christian without the church? Or can I go to church in PJs and off a screen for the rest of my life? I hope this series helps you move away from cultural norms and beliefs about church and brings us back into God's word and heart for the local church. Enjoy the sermon. All right, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sharing. It's like one of my favorite parts of church is watching you guys um, talk through stuff together. So I was in psychology. One of my favorite classes at UCI in my psych major was abnormal psychology. And so I learned about um, multi-personality disorder as well as paranoid schizophrenia. And those were kind of big, like, topical issues in abnormal psychology. Uh, One of them was on uh, with multi-personality disorder your personality starts to split and so maybe it's a woman in one personality and then and then she's a man in another and she speaks in a masculine voice or I saw another video of a woman who had a personality split and she would have a personality where she's uh, an adult and then another personality where she's a child and then we have in in schizophrenia some of the Symptoms or, you know, ways in which their minds are affected is that they could hear voices, they could see things that aren't there, they could watch a cat, like, roam this gym and be like, hey, that's a cool cat, and no one else sees it. But if it's real to you, it's really hard to not to believe it's unreal just because a hundred other people are telling you it's not real. And um, I just imagine, you know, raising my hand in this 400-person lecture as I'm learning about these categories and be like, hey, professor, is it possible that the person with multi-personality disorder or schizophrenia is demon-possessed? Now, I'm not saying the whole category is demon-possessed. I'm just saying, like, we don't have a demon-possessed category. But this person, which, when she's speaking like a man, and, and I just kind of think about, like, Jesus talking to demons. Like, is that a possibility? Or when this person on video is saying, like, a demon is telling me to kill myself, maybe it's a demon. Like, what if I raise my hand and ask the professor whether demons are possibly impacting these people's spiritual health? I I imagine that UCI, if he was a staunch atheist, right, he'd be like, yeah, Wilson, we should consider demons, that's, that's probably part of why this person is um, hearing these voices. And maybe as a solution, we can go into the woods, call the forest elves, you know, and, and the gnomes to come and use their magic to drive out the demons, right? It's, all, it's like, it's as ridiculous as a category for this person uh, to believe in demons as it is to believe in elf, elf light power. It's the same exact thing. And I think what we're seeing in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is this delineation between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. 
And, and God is, and what Paul is saying here is he's saying that the world's wisdom has limitations. And because of its limits, because it's not able to have access to the spiritual realm, they see it as foolish. And often when we don't understand something, it's either foolish or we are in fear of it. So in the next definition, these are theological terms. General revelation, which we're equivocating to the wisdom of the world or the world's wisdom. I'm trying to define the terms that we'll delve into as we open up the the passage, right? General revelation is knowledge that he reveals to everyone. Knowledge that can be obtained through observing the physical world. So when we look at all of our studies from mathematics to engineering to biology to psychology, we have knowledge that is accessible because we can see it, we can observe it, we can listen. It's tangible to us. We can put it into a microscope, right? So that's general revelation, God's truth that is in the physical realm and accessible to people who know or do not know God. A lot of our sciences come out of uh, general revelation. But there's also false assumptions and conclusions that can be based off of a non-Christian or secular worldview that also falls into the category of wisdom of this age. And then there's God's wisdom and knowledge, special revelation that can be only understood through the Holy Spirit, pertaining to knowledge that cannot be observed and that resides in the physical realm. Okay, so special revelation is like Jesus' forgiveness, the Trinity, eternity, that people have a soul, that these understanding these concepts can only come through the Holy Spirit revealing that reality to us. And my hypothetical professor telling me to call wood elves, right, is because that he's studying only the physical universe, only what is observable. And so the things that he doesn't have access to, like demons, a knowledge about, he sees as foolishness and ridiculous. And Paul actually at the end of this passage tells us just to live in that tension. It's okay if the world thinks you're, you're foolish, that this other realm and your spiritual life is imaginary. It's okay if they come into other conclusions about life because they're starting with other presumptions and presuppositions. So let's read this text, and I hope that those definitions will help you understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6-8. to We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, This message is God's wisdom, but not the wisdom of this age, the world's wisdom, or the rulers of this age who are coming to an end. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the king of glory, the Lord of glory. Why can't they understand it? Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. This idea of revealed is is, is re- in relation to the previous verse where it says these things are hidden, right? So the word revealed is, the, is like the is taking something that was hidden, taking something that was behind this curtain that God had hid away, this invisible realm or these these truths that that aren't revealed by general revelation, and God peels back the curtain. The, The Holy Spirit peels back the curtain, and now we're able to see it. But without the Spirit, we can't see it, we can't hear it, we can't even conceive it. 
The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are, they are only discerned through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, right? If you have the Spirit of God, you're looking into mental health and you're saying, yes, we should take medicine for brain chemistry to correct that. Yes, we need to talk through trauma, but there's this whole other avenue of healing and help that is spiritual, that we need to confront lies with truth, that we need the Spirit to um, move in our hearts so that the demons aren't taking up residence. Those are things that um, only are discernible through the Spirit and give us a more complete picture. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, right? This more comprehensive view of the human, of the soul, of reality. For such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, merely judgments on the physical. That's not the only realm that they're able to observe. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct them, but we have the mind of Christ. So in the next slide, I just kind of summarize some of those verses. That God's knowledge and spiritual reality are hidden from secular or material knowledge. The world's wisdom. They're not understood by it. Um, they're invisible to secular knowledge. And they're thought of as foolish or antiquated in secular knowledge. Because secular knowledge has no access to the knowledge that we have if we, if we have the spirit in us. But I think one of my fears in our generation is that we don't think about um, this delineation in the knowledge of the world versus the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of the world comes with a lot of presumptions that Christians uh, don't believe and vice versa, right? So in the next slide, the, the world has a... When they make conclusions, when they make observations, when they speak about topics, they're thinking about the world, uh, at least in the worldview of an atheist. No God, self-defined and determined life. Truth is whatever you believe to be in the moment that you believe it. There's nothing beyond the material. Everything out of existence comes by random chance. Now, there's a lot of conclusions that Christians and non-Christians can make by observation that are that don't that these presuppositions don't influence, like mathematics, like engineering, a lot of engineering, right? Like a lot of biology. We can come to the same conclusion because we're looking at the same things. But then there's this other realm of knowledge, uh, maybe in opposition or in the uh, other side of the spectrum, as opposed to math, like human sexuality, like ethics, like purpose, like eternity, like love or beauty that we can't, that are immaterial. We can't put them on a scale or in a beaker. And we're going to approach those concepts from very different presuppositions and land in very different uh, conclusions oftentimes. But when I think about Christian sourcing in popular culture in our age, I feel like most of us make no distinctions. We don't look at a post or an information that we're consuming and say, what are the presuppositions leading to this conclusion? Because, of course, if you get to define every aspect of who you are, you'll, you will promote this type of view. But if you believe that God 
you know, that we're surrendering our full entire bodies and humanities to the Lord, maybe you're going to come up with something different. So are we, are we even asking about the presuppositions of the people that we're following, digesting, and taking information from? Especially in this other category outside of, let's say, mathematics. You know, what I really appreciated about Dr. Ken's conversation with us last week is how he built his approach in medicine from Christian presuppositions. When he looked at pancreatic cancer, how did he approach it? He said, God made the human body. He made it to work. He was intentional with every part. He made it to heal itself. Those are the presuppositions that Dr. Ken walks into the way he does research, the way he invents medical equipment, and the way he interacts with the problem. And then he takes his medical knowledge and places it on top of those presuppositions that all Christians should have, and he heals through his presuppositions into his medical knowledge. Is, is there a through line between what you believe as Christians and all of the other categories? This one also is on one red square. Um, we're just living on the edge. Check, check. Oh, oh, it's still there. Okay. Are you taking your Christian presuppositions, God's wisdom revealed to you by the Spirit that looks foolish to the world, that doesn't make sense to them? They, they have another starting point, and, and it makes sense that they start somewhere different, but also does it make sense to us that we conclude in different ways? And are we taking those presuppositions and basing all of the other knowledge that we've obtained and allowing it to come out of there? Okay, that's my challenge to you today. I was going to then explain the Trinity to you, but I decided not, not to do that because I don't want you to glaze over and then pass out. I just want you to glaze over. Okay, how do we obtain Christian wisdom, uh, God's wisdom and spiritual knowledge? And here the passage actually does delve into this Trinitarian relationship that is really beautiful. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul gives us, allows us to peer into the Trinity. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Maurice, really appreciate you. Thank you, Larry, Irwin, someone else in the back that I can't see. Thanks, everyone. What you have, no, I, I feel bad because AV only gets attention when things are breaking. So I sincerely mean thank you. And I'm going to thank you when things are, all the other times we don't notice you. So when we finally notice you, let's thank you no matter what's going on. Okay. Um, and then he, he gives us appearing into the Trinity, and then he says this, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. This person of the Trinity that knows God, that is God, that has all access to all knowledge and spiritual knowledge, he lives inside of us. And I hope that blows you away. I, I think we can get familiar with that concept, like Jesus died for us. Oh, that's, yeah, I know. The, the spirit lives inside of you. Okay, yeah, I've heard that before. That's actually a mind-blowing concept that the greatest being in the universe took a resident in us. That's kind of crazy. And especially if you look at the Old Testament, I'm just going to give you snippets because I fleshed this out six weeks ago. 
approaching God, the first thing you feel is fear. Just getting, in his, just getting anywhere near his presence. We have Isaiah brought up to the throne room of God. And he's trying to describe this, thing, this scene of celestial beings, these angels who are mighty and, and good and, and sinless, and they're trying to press into the unbridled glory of God. And as they're doing this, they're covering their head with a set of wings. They're covering their feet with another set because the radiance and glory of God is like is like coming at them in waves, pushing them back. It's like too much, and yet they want more. And so they have their wings in the middle, trying to press towards him. And, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The most mightiest of creation is trying to near God, but, but it's been pushed back and nearing him again. And then it says the whole temple is filled with this glory. Smoke comes out, and the foundations of the celestial temple is shaking. And Isaiah's like, why am I here? And he says, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the king. He's saying, this is a death sentence, God. You have brought me to die. When you think about Moses wanting to lead Israel to Canaan, he tells God, God tells him, I'm going to send an angel because these people are going to do wicked things and the, my glory will consume them. And Moses is like, I don't want to lead people. I just want you. So if you're here, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to go without you. And God's like, all right. Then we are basically going to have to make really complex structures called the tabernacle and the temple because you, we need to shield my glory from people who are sinners. Not because I'm being a threat, but because my glory is threatening them. So they build this tabernacle so that God in his glory can be with his people without consuming them. It's a shield for his glory. And there's all these rites and rituals to be able to enter in to the Holy of Holies. I have this theory that I haven't espoused for like 15 years because I didn't know it was true. Um, and I'm going to say it today. I, I believe that being in the presence of God, if you don't have Jesus' forgiveness as an unbeliever, is more tormenting than being in hell. Like you just disintegrate in his glory. And he doesn't even have to judge you. He's just there unbridled. And you standing in front of him without the forgiveness of Christ, you're, you're standing on the sun. And then, and the reason why I'm willing to say this, almost, almost as an act of mercy, God allows for the space where he doesn't exist. So that those who do not want them can reside there instead of in heaven where his glory is completely uncovered. I'm willing to share this on a sermon because I read The Great Divorce. And C.S. Lewis has this very similar concept. There's these souls in hell. They call them ghosts. And they get to have this field trip to heaven. So they all get in a bus. And they get to the very edge of heaven. The very edge. And there's nothing stopping them. They're actually invited into heaven. There's no barriers between heaven and hell. And so these few people decide, I might want to go to heaven and check it out. right? So they go to the very edge of heaven. 
And then they start describing heaven. The, the people who most love them are there to meet them, beckoning them to come, beckoning them to be dependent on this king who forgives. And the way they describe heaven to these, to these ghosts, as he calls it, is that the grass, the grass feels like blades going through their feet, that they don't have the substance it takes to be in that reality, that even the grass is piercing them, let alone standing before the king. And this, this piece of heaven is like the dawning of the sun where you just have a glimmer of God's glory. That's where they are. It's kind of this between darkness and light space. But even there, even in their, their, their inches towards God, they cannot, they cannot exist in that world. So that's us before the Father. That's us standing in the throne room. And what, what a magnificent event. I'm just imagining that these angels who are pressing into God, observing God himself descending on earth and then coming into our souls. And they're like, oh, they're going to combust. Like, they're all dead. Like, all these Christians at Pentecost, they're gone. Because God himself is trying to live inside of them. But then it just speaks to the comprehensive forgiveness of Christ. He forgives us so entirely and completely that we have his righteousness and we are fully forgiven to the point where God doesn't, we're not, we not only can approach the throne room, but that the holy of holies lives inside of us. I just want to establish some of that. The intimacy of God to live inside of us, right? It's like, hey, Josh, can I live inside of you? Like, is that okay? Philip said he would charge me rent. He said it would cost me $500 a month to live inside of him. And Noel made this, like, vomity face, right? Like, like what if I walked around and just offered to live inside of you guys? Isn't that crazy? The spirit is intimate with us in the most, like, I can't think philosophically of a way in which the spirit can be more intimate with us without taking over our, our personhood. He's, he's as close as he possibly can be. The Spirit of God, we receive the Spirit of God. He lives inside of us. I hope that we'll take more space in our weeks to just sit with that. In our silence, we would allow our ears and our eyes to quiet so that we can hear the voice of the Spirit. And in solitude, we would say, no one else is more important for me to give focus attention to than the spirit who lives inside of me. And we would just create space to be like, wow, the spirit is in me. He is living in me. And can I just pay attention to that? And then as he lives in us, he, it, it, he does this so that we may understand what God has freely given us. At salvation, he gives us every spiritual blessing, as it says in Ephesians. But we're just trying to like, understand that. This 
is what we speak in words not taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual taught words, spirit taught words. If you ever walk into a new field, I, I got into stocks over 2020, like every millennial, right? Listening to like Mad Money and Montley Fool and all these, um, let's see, um, halftime report. And the hardest thing is all the jargon because you're entering into a new world. And when you go into the Christian faith, there's a lot of jargon as well. But these words, if we learn it beyond our intellectual mind, he's teaching us about a new reality, a new category. I want to invite you again to our devotional at 9 a.m. I'm there um, every other day. Pastor Chrissy is there, Daniel, Joey, um, Rebecca is there. And we do this together. We sit with the Lord together um, to hear his voice. And to recognize that the spirit lives inside of us. And then we open Oswald Chambers and we are learning all the spiritual language and, and, and speaking to each other in it. It's supposed to be in community. So if you're having a hard time just learning how to practice this, you don't have to do it alone. Just uh, go again to our Facebook group or to our fan page and the, the, the link, the Zoom link is right there. You can jump in with us. Okay, how does the Spirit use the Bible to give us spiritual language and reveal spiritual realities? We're going to end on this slide, but it's going to take us 30 minutes. Okay, <laughs> just kidding, a little bit. Um, so when we think about the Spirit, how does he give us spiritual language? Well, it's most primarily through Scripture. The scripture teaches us about the spiritual realm, but it does it kind of like online dating, right? Have you, I, a lot of you guys did online dating and um, you look at a person's profile, right? Why are you looking at her profile or his profile? It's not autobiography. You're not trying to like learn about this person through the profile. It's setting you up to meet the person, right? When they say, oh, I smile easily. And then you sit in front of them for coffee. You're like, your face is kind of flat the whole time, you know? <laughs> or they have this beautiful smile that even at your worst jokes, they're smiling at you. And you get to experience what you're reading um, in, in their profile. And that's the goal of the profile, for you to experience the person, for you to experience how much they love their grandma or how good of a photographer they are as they take photos of you or how great their jokes are, right? How witty they are, um, how they're a foodie. Your, your goal in reading that is to experience them. Are we reading the Bible to experience Jesus? Are we reading the Bible or are we meeting Christ as we open up scripture? All right, that's what, that's what Jesus tells his disciples. Um, at the end of his journey, he opens up the scripture and he says, <clears throat> beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that what was said in all of scripture concerning himself, that all scripture was about him. You know, I remember going to RFKC, and one of the stories from a counselor was this kid who reached up at her and said, would you hold my hand, right? And she's a little bit of a germaphobe, and she's looking at this kid's hand, and it has breakfast, you know, from 16 hours ago, <laughs> snot, sweat, every bodily fluid, uh, dirt. It's probably a Petri dish from COVID, like COVID didn't start in China, it started with this kid's hand, right? And he's reaching out, she's reaching out to her counselor, like, will you take my hand? And she's like, oh, my gosh, you know. And then she holds, his, she holds her hand. And in that moment, the Spirit said, um, you're holding the hand of Christ. Because what you do for the least of these, you do for me. 
And in a very real way, she met Jesus and held his hand. And the Spirit allows the words of Scripture to come alive, that we meet Jesus. And all of us felt that way at camp, right? We had like all of the least of these running around. And there's all moments for each of us where like we're meeting Jesus, we're serving Jesus here. For me, I spent like the most time in my life, maybe an hour, just, just filling up water and giving it to kids. Because I'm like, I, I felt like in that moment, I was giving it to Jesus. And I was filling up this water cup and I was like, here Jesus, here's some water. Here Jesus, here little girl Jesus, here big boy Jesus, you know, and I'm just giving Jesus water over and over again. And I'm meeting Jesus through the Spirit through his word. The spirit also reorients our hearts so that we want what's in scripture, right? Before the Lord comes into our heart, we want sin. We want self. We want things our own way. But the spirit changes us and allows us to have a new true north where we desire God and we reorient our will and our desires. The, the fundamental desire of our heart is for God. You know, that's one of the most, uh, the deepest markers of a Christian, that you became Christian, is that you want the things of God, that you want God. And also that the Spirit empowers us. You know, I love the Christian religion compared to other religions because our religions drop a textbook and it's like, good luck, hope you can live the standard and then like walks away. And someone's like kind of helping you understand what those standards are. In the Christian faith, God gives us the Bible, and then he says, you're not going to be able to do it. So I'm going to give you my spirit to give you power beyond your abilities, so that when you can't forgive, you ask the spirit, and he gives you the power to forgive. When you run out of patience, because you have to work and help your kids with school and mother them the whole time or father them the whole time, you say, spirit, give me patience, because I'm running out. And he does it. Um, there's this guy who's applying to RFKC for like the 20th year. I, I believe he's in his 70s or 80s. His name's Don. And we missed RFKC last year because of COVID. So this year he heard it's happening. So he goes to OC United's office. And the, he pulls up. Amy's watching him pull up. His caretaker comes out of the car, opens the door for him. And he's in a walker. And she's, she, he, she's never seen him in a walker before. And he's slowly making his way to the door. She opens it up. And he, the first thing he says, not hello, he says, I'm going to RFKC this year. And he's like, I've suffered two strokes, but I can still make it. I need to wake up four times at night to poo because I have like, diet, like stomach issues. But if you put me next to a restroom, I'm pretty sure I can make it. That's the power of the spirit. You know, I'm like, I'm like the princess and princess in the pea. We're like, if I don't have a Tempur-Pedic mattress, really like completely dark room, and my sound machine on, I can't go to sleep. So that's, he's someone filled with the spirit. I'm just Wilson caught up in my limits. You see the difference? You see the difference between this guy who's 70 plus with two strokes going to RFKC and me like, I don't know, the mattress is kind of thin. You see the difference, right? Be someone who is empowered by the spirit. And lastly, there's tacit learning. Tacit learning is learning that you can't do through words on a page or a lecture. Tacit learning is, is a unique P 
peace of learning that only happens in relationship with, from an apprentice and a master. And you learn all of these things that are, are not able to be articulated through words. You learn their aura, their presence, the culture they're building, the, the way they say things, the warmth in which they extend themselves. You can, you, can, you can robotically say those same words, but you can't learn how to say it like him or her unless you're with them. And then there's that soul transfer. And that's what the Spirit is offering us as he lives inside of us. I remember... Um, coming into RFKC the first day, we all made signs with the kids' uh, names on them. And we're watching these kids come out of the bus, and they're laughing and smiling and wooing and giving high fives to the counselors. We did that bridge, the high five bridge, and they're all running, giving high fives. And then there's this one kid who walks out, and he's like flat-faced, like not happy to be there, doesn't make eye contact, just looks mean, right? And he's walking down that, that row of counselors like, no high fives, no high fives for anybody, right? I don't want to be here. And I was like, oh, Lord, please bless his counselor. They're going to have such a hard time. Would you just be with his counselor, give him strength? And then he walked straight to me. I was like, I was praying for myself, you know. And, uh, and then as, as we went to it, and I said, hey, Zach, would you like my poster card? And he was like, no. I was like, I spent four hours. Like, that's all I did today. And then um, as we went through camp, though, God just started opening my heart to him as a father. Like his heart, he was giving me. And then as we're building trust, as I'm meeting his needs, as I'm learn, leaning in to listen, he starts to trust me. And he starts to open up. And it makes sense. He's been in five homes in one year, two group homes, three foster homes. Of course, he's going to walk in defending himself. But then his defenses started slowly coming down. And, and there's this one moment where, where uh, we're on the swing pool, and he wants that wristband that says he could go to the deep end, but you have to do this swim test, right? So he's swimming across the pool, and he doesn't make it, and he just feels terrible. And I was like, oh, you're so close. I think you can do it. He's like, I can't. You know, I can't. He was, like, even mad at me. But I was like, Zach, I'm going to teach you how to swim. And the next time we go into a pool, you know, I'm teaching him strokes, how to come up for air, and he's getting it. He made it across once, and then the lifeguard says, I think he's ready. And, and, and the swimming test is a big deal. The whole pool stops. And all the kids come together and we make one lane. And it's like, it's like a gladiator scene, right? It's like with little kids in water. And he's swimming across. And I'm running next to him in water. And I'm yelling at the top of my lungs. It's like the Olympics. All the kids are cheering. And he makes it to the end, other end of the pool. And I had the pride of a father. I've never been so proud, right? Of, and, then, and then the next day we're swimming and I see him picking up these pool toys scattered in the deep end. And he's like harvesting them. He has like 10 of them in his hands. I was like, why does he have 10 pool toys? And then he goes to the shallow end and all the five-year-olds, he's 10, they're like half his size. They're all kind of huddled together in this little corner trying not to die. And, um, and he gets there and he's like the Robin Hood of pool toys. He starts like distributing these pool toys and then he's like, what's my name? And they'll be like, Zach! And then he'll give them a toy, you know? And, they're, and then at the end, they're all chatting, Zach, 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 you know? I was like, I think the hardest part of a kid being in foster is that they're missed. You know, we think about our kids and we see all these incremental nuances of who they are and we fall in love. And, and I got to have those eyes for this kid and he knew that I saw him. And I, 
And I, I think he knew that God was seeing him. You know, there's so much learning we do that isn't here. There's so much worship we're to do that isn't here. That I can't give you in a room with the word open or even in small group. You learn a lot there. You learn the language. You have a framework. But it's about God taking you out into dark places, into your work, into this kid's camp. And teaching you all, allowing these flat words to be filled with color and texture and story and names and life. That's what the Spirit's doing in you. I hope you aren't satisfied reading the Bible like any person could without the Spirit. Just kind of getting the context, understanding the meaning, and then taking pride in that. God wants so much more for you. He wants to open up new realities. As we go into these questions, you know, I think about how worship is teaching us spiritual language. I think about as a community, our conversations should be different. It should be filled with spiritual language and us having these communal experiences of all of us going to RFKC as our church retreat and, and, and seeing this reality together. There's this unique bond of these counselors. We have different like ideologies. We voted for different politicians. We have different views on COVID. But we came together through age and ethnicity, and we experienced this reality, and it bound us. And I hope that that's how we define family. What is the spiritual language and reality that you're desiring the Spirit to teach you this week? Can you identify parts of your theology, your understanding of God that is just flat words? And you've, you can say, I know it, but the Spirit hasn't taught me yet. It's so different, right? I don't know if you've ever come to a place in your study of God's Word where you've heard it from this preacher, you heard it from your small group, but then God says it to you. The Spirit reveals it to you, and your eyes are open to a new reality. What is it that you're asking the Spirit to do to teach you this week? And how can you be more present with the Spirit? How can you just stand in awe that a person of the Trinity lives inside of you, and you can just be with him? And lastly, I would encourage you just to pray with your small group that whatever they share, would you pray that into that the Spirit would work in that way for them this week? And then serve communion to one another as we do every Sunday, saying this is his body broken for you. This is his blood shed for you. God, I'm so grateful for the work of your Spirit. I'm so grateful that you are the shepherd, you are the teacher, you are the helper. And I just get to like give some language but our expectations are not here. Our expectations are with you. And would they expect you to show them reality throughout their week? In Jesus' name, amen. We'd love for you to go back into your small group.